Hey, it's Manoush here. We have got a little something extra for you in your podcast feed this week. The runoff Senate elections in the state of Georgia have been huge news. And while she's not on the ballot this time, a driving force behind the scenes for Democrats has been Stacey Abrams. She lost her run for governor a couple years ago, but that did not slow down her efforts. In fact, she seemed more determined than ever to get out the votes in her home state. And when I got the chance to interview Stacey a couple months ago, I wanted to understand how she kept up that mental momentum as a politician and as an African-American woman. We included parts of that conversation in our TED Radio Hour episode at the time. But you know what? Everything Stacy said was so interesting that we thought you'd want to hear the whole conversation, especially in light of the headlines. Because I interview a lot of inspiring people, but Stacy is one who's at the top of my list. Here is the entire conversation I had with Stacey Abrams with just a few edits for pacing and clarity. And you might also occasionally hear the pitter-patter of little feet above my makeshift home studio. Making it work, people. Enjoy. Would you mind please introducing yourself? Tell us your name and what you do. My name is Stacey Abrams. I am the founder of Fair Fight Action, which works to protect the right to vote, the founder of Fair Count, which works to protect the census, and the Southern Economic Advancement Project. I serve as the founder and the executive director, which works to build economic power in the South. So, Stacy, do you mind just briefly telling us a bit about your childhood, your upbringing? Um, you were pretty good at school. I I was very good at school. I didn't do a lot else. I, I'm the second of six kids, and I was introverted, or I am introverted. I wasn't shy, but I didn't see the point of spending a lot of time running around other people. <laughs> I spent more time reading and thinking Playing with my siblings, I sort of had a you know, built-in family-slash-friendship pod. But I love learning, and that meant that I spent a lot of time not just not doing my homework necessarily, but trying to learn new things. But my parents also were very intentional about us serving. And so we spent nearly every weekend doing a community activity, which it was disconcerting to us because we are like, you guys do know we're poor. And they said that didn't matter, (laughs) that our economic situation did not absolve us of our responsibility, as my dad would put it. Having nothing is not an excuse for doing nothing. And you were such a good student, actually, that you were valedictorian of your high school and were invited to do something pretty special and unusual, right? So in Georgia, when you are the valedictorian of your high school, you are invited to meet the governor of Georgia. There are 180 school districts, so 100, and then among the school districts, you know, a varying number of high schools. I was valedictorian of my high school, so I got invited to meet the governor of Georgia. Which is super cool, except for that when you and your parents got to the actual gates of the governor's mansion, something unfortunate happened. So my family, as I said, was we're working poor. Uh, it was true when we lived in Mississippi. It was true when we moved to Georgia. And when we got to Georgia, the car that we had in Mississippi died. So we spent most of our time using public transit to get around. Therefore, on the day we went to go and visit the governor's mansion, which is in Buckhead, a really ritzy part of Atlanta, we had to take the bus. 
my parents and I get off the bus, we walk across the street, and as these cars arrive driving in kids from all over the state, we're sort of walking up the side of the driveway, staying out of the ways of the cars, and we get to the guard gate. And the guard looks at me, he looks at my parents, he looks at the bus that's pulling away, and he tells us we don't belong here. Uh, mm-hmm. He assumed we were, you know, I guess visitors coming to just view the governor's mansion as tourists. And my dad says, no, no, you know, this is my daughter, Stacy. You know, she's one of the valedictorians. But the guard didn't look at the list that he had. He didn't accept the invitation my mom had in her purse. He just kind of sneered at us. And he said, look, I told mm-hmm. you, you don't belong here. Uh, Luckily for me and unluckily for him, my parents were very insistent about our treatment <laughs> in public spaces. And so uh, although my parents were in Georgia, we'd moved here because they were in training to become pastors. They were less than religious that day. My father was very insistent that the man check his list and let me in. But I don't really remember the event itself. We got inside. I don't remember the event. I don't remember meeting the governor. I just remember this guy, this powerful guy standing in front of a guard gate in front of the governor's mansion telling me I don't belong there. I mean, on the one hand, that's incredibly sad and shameful that you don't actually remember the event itself. You don't remember celebrating your incredible achievements. On the other hand, knowing who you are now, a lawyer, a prominent politician, first African-American woman to ever become the nominee for governor in the history of the U.S. for a major party – you know, you can't help but think that awful moment actually informed who you are, impacted your life. No, that's absolutely true. It became part of the narrative when I was running for governor, in part because I needed people to understand that I understand, that I wasn't raised with this notion that I could ever aspire to being governor of a state, let alone being the first black woman to do this. I had never thought of myself necessarily as a change agent in that way, but there is something very galling, but also very motivating about some stranger telling you who you are and what you mean. Mm. And when I ran for governor, for me, it was about saying, look, I was told long time ago, I didn't belong in this place. And I've spent my life, whether intentionally or not, proving him wrong. But it wasn't about him. It wasn't about what he saw or didn't see in me. It was about who I am and who I intend to be. And this is my state. This is my country. And I belong here as much as anybody else. I wonder if you think in some ways, there you were, this amazing student. Clearly, you learned a lot at school. But in the flash of a moment in your life, you learned something perhaps just as impactful. Yeah, I I think there are a few things. One is that humiliation isn't permanent. When Hmm. you're young, you you think of each moment of just embarrassment as this permanent scar. And it stops us from trying so many things. We talk ourselves out of auditioning or raising our hand or joining a club or talking to somebody because we're so afraid of being humiliated. Well, I I was humiliated by a guard at an event and he was powerful in that space. He had a gun. 
He protected the building. He protected the governor. He was a state trooper. And he felt it was in his power to diminish me. And while he did have the effect of erasing what could have been a wonderful memory for me, he didn't have the power to stop me from being valedictorian. Mm. And the humiliation of that moment didn't have the power to stop me from becoming who I would be. And I think the second is that you learn to dream bigger. When you've got more time and more space, you've got time to just think about stuff you never imagined. I'd never met a lawyer growing up. I'd never met a politician. You know, other than my parents, I knew very few people who'd gone to college or graduate school until I was 15. And yet I ended up going to college, to grad school, to law school. I had never met an entrepreneur. I didn't know what that was until I was in college. And so part of what you can learn is that you can dream beyond the things you know, because I read about them. I found other examples that were outside of my daily life, but were within the scope of my imagination. I'm assuming you hadn't, well, you had met a governor at that point. <laughs> yes, by the time I was 17, I met a governor. <laughs> And so just remind us, if you wouldn't mind, um, what happened in the race for governor just a couple years ago now? So I, I had two really interesting parts to my race for governor. I had a primary and my opponent also had the name, first name of Stacy. We spelled it the same way. The distinction was our race. And for so many people, that was the only difference they could tell. They actually called us the Stacys, something that would never happen with men. And so my first campaign for governor, my primary, was really a study in how gender impacts how you can run for office and how race and gender intersect. And I think if you're a young person, if you're a college student, we're often told we should try to divorce ourselves from those isms that they don't govern who we are. And, and that's just not true. It, race matters. Gender matters. There are ways you engage society that are determined by those things, but they cannot, they may determine some parts of it, but they cannot define wholly who you are. Right. And so part of the first race was really about me dispelling mythology about who I was and whether I was even capable of standing for this office. And then in the general election, I ran against uh, the guy who was in charge of running the elections. So using a sports metaphor, I ran against the contestant, the referee, and the scorekeeper. Uh, it did not turn out well for me, <laughs> but it turned out better than I think anyone expected, given that we came within 1.4% of victory, and I came within 54,000 votes out of you know, nearly 4 million. Wow. And so in that election, I had to grapple with racial issues, with gender questions. But I also had to talk about my debt and talk about my brother who has been in the carceral system and has been in and out of jail. And, and that goes back to the point of humiliation slash pride. I'm not ashamed of my brother. I'm not ashamed of my debt. And I had to learn that the mistakes that people make or the challenges we face do not invalidate the legitimacy of our engagement. I had the right to run for governor. I had the right to win. And those challenges or stumbles I may have faced 
did not invalidate me. And, and that's a hard lesson to learn, especially in public on television day after day. Listening to you talk, I, I bet some people would think, and I probably would have thought, that you are a real risk taker. But having heard your TED Talk, I actually think you are extremely strategic and you share a process that you have when you make choices about how to move forward. Can you share that process? Sure. Number one, it's know what you want. And that can be risky. It can be risky to let yourself dream. And that's why I encourage people to do it. I, you know, I've been chastised in public recently, again, <laughs> for being too ambitious, for dreaming too big. <laughs> but it's the only way you can set the parameters of your goals. You have to. Man, I hate that. Can I just say the fact that you get called too ambitious? Have you <laughs> ever heard a dude be called that? No. Never. Nope. Uh, it, it is disconcerting. There's another word for it, but we're on radio, so I'm going to keep it to myself. <laughs> keep it clean. And so, you know, number one, know what you want. Number two, know why you want it. And that part is so important because often we jump from the wanting to the doing. But if you haven't given yourself the time and the space to think about why you want it, sometimes you miss the moment where it's not actually the thing you thought it was. It's the thing that's right next door, but you don't recognize it. And so it's so critical to take that time and to, to really excavate what it is that you want, but why it is that you want it. Because when it's hard, when people are saying inappropriate things about you, when your opponent has a commercial where you are you know, portrayed as King Kong climbing the side of a building in one of the most racist, sexist tropes you can imagine, when people are saying terrible things about you and your family you have to know why you're doing this stuff. And then the third is, you know, know how you're going to get it. It is important to write it down, to make a plan. And yet you call me strategic. I am a risk taker in that I try things that are guaranteed to fail at least half the time. But I'm strategic in that I know what the steps need to be because ambition and dreams without a plan, it's just a wish. So, I think about it. I write it down. I figure out what are the steps. And I've been not only chastised for being too ambitious, I've been called too calculating. But <laughs> a dude who writes this stuff down, <laughs> a guy who says, I want to create a company and I'm just going to wish it is so, you know, people would laugh at him. And he said, oh, I wrote it down and I planned this and I planned that. That's celebrated as thoughtful and strategic. When I did it, I was called am too ambitious and calculating. But particularly when you come from a place where people don't expect of you, that also means they don't teach you how. Mm -hmm. And so my approach is I'm going to teach myself how, and I'm going to find people who help me navigate, and I'm going to understand what works and what doesn't work because anything less is nearly a guarantee that I'm not going to be successful. Do you get any satisfaction out of uh, proving people's expectations wrong or realizing that they have no expectations and then showing them all the things that you can achieve? Or does that just annoy you? I can be a petty human. Yeah. I mean, there, <laughs> there, is, <laughs> there, there, there is satisfaction. There are some people who have been very intentional and disciplined about their underestimation of me. 
when I was running for governor, I had a group of people who I would have, if you'd asked me on any day, I would have said, these are my friends. These are people I can rely on. They had been there for me when I ran for office the first time, when I ran for leader, they'd stuck by me. But when I called them about running for governor, they said, uh, well, you know, you're smart and you're capable. You're probably the best candidate, but you're a black woman. And they would whisper it like they were telling me that I had a terminal illness. And you're like, I know. That's exactly it. That's exactly what I would do. I'm like, I've seen me. This is not news. But their expectations of me ended at the water's edge of race. It wasn't my gender because they were willing to support my opponent. It wasn't my capacity because they knew what I could do. It was my race that stopped them cold. The fact that I was a black woman, not just a black person, but a black woman that suspended their expectations of me. And it was one of the most devastating parts of running. But there was also this deep satisfaction in the degree of my success. I mean, I had a fairly successful run in my primary. We gathered a lot of votes and we outpaced everyone's expectations, both in the primary and in the general. And yes, I I take some satisfaction from it, but I also take I take the disappointment I felt and try to use that to cushion the blow for others. It's important for people to know it's okay to want more, especially if you don't look like what they expect. And I don't want another young black woman who has this ambition to be told by people she trusts that she's thinking too much and she wants too much and she needs to stop. Because when that happened to me, there was no one I could turn to who had faced it before because no one had gotten as far as I'd gotten. It sounds like when you ran for governor, of of all the things that you learned during that process, you were still kind of surprised to discover that the fact that you were a black woman was the was still the biggest strike against you. I, I would say I, I wasn't surprised by the narrative. I was surprised by who was delivering it. Hmm. That that was the the disconcerting part. And where I think we are today as a nation is that, yes, there is more of a clamor. But let's be clear, this is not universal. Right. There's no universality to him having a woman of color, having a black woman as his running mate. There is much more interest and it is a louder clarion call than we have heard before. But there are still those who doubt and who question both the legitimacy of and the utility of. Hmm. So... Where are you now then in terms of answering those three questions for yourself? What do I want? Why do I want it? And how do I get it? What I want is I want people to have opportunity. And that, that sounds so you know, vague and you know, fortune cookie-ish. Um, <laughs> I think poverty is immoral. I think criminal justice should be real. And that means there has to be justice in how we treat those who commit crimes, but there also has to be justice in how we offer public safety in our society. I believe in environmental justice and social justice. I want people to be able to be the most they can without these barriers that do not exist for a certain segment of our society. So that's what I want. The reason I want it is because I grew up poor. I grew up you know, beset by different forms of discrimination and buffeted by these under 
overwhelming expectations of me. But I also grew up with extraordinary parents and privileged and blessed to encounter people who saw more in me. And I want that for other people because I know what it can feel like. But I also know what you can deliver if you can do more. And the why of it for me is that it is wrong. It is wrong to deny opportunity. It is wrong to have intentional suffering that could be solved. It is wrong to limit our expectations and our capacities based on these trivialities of where you were born and when you were born and how you were born. And I want to be clear, race and gender and sexual orientation and gender identity and religion and ethnicity, these are all things that actually do matter. And they have a place in how we think about things, but they should never have a place in denying your agency, denying your humanity. Mm. And how I get there is that I'm incredibly methodical. I have identified the jobs that I could have that help me get there. Some of those jobs are in government. Other times it is best accomplished by being in a corporation that I've started. And there are other moments where it's starting a nonprofit that can do the work. And so where I think I differ in, in ways that folks aren't quite used to is that I see these platforms as fungible. I do not believe I have to remain in public office to be effective. I do not believe that I have to eschew the private sector to be righteous. And I don't think that a nonprofit is a step down. I think it is an absolutely essential part of how we build a just society. Well, first of all, it sounds like you're extremely busy, but also it sounds like you are still a really good student watching and learning and figuring out the best way to accomplish all the things that you listed. But how much do you feel like at this point, it's time for people to learn from you that the student you the good good student now really needs the chance to be the teacher? I I don't frame it in that way. I you know, my mom was a librarian when I was growing up. She was a research librarian. And when you had questions, she would answer. But if the questions became annoying, or if there are too many of them, because there are six of us, my mom would use that familiar trope, go look it up. And in our family, you had no excuse because you literally had access to almost any book you needed. So when she said, go look it up, she really meant it. I grew up believing that there is no end to the acquisition of knowledge. There's no end to the acquisition of learning. There is also always an opportunity to share what you've learned not simply by reciting it, but by living it. And so I hope every day that I am demonstrating to those who work with me or for me, I'm demonstrating in real time in an active practice what I believe to be true. When I work with young people in particular, I encourage experimentation and I encourage fallibility. Make mistakes. It's the only way you're going to get better at this. Just tell me the truth about the mistake you've made so I can make sure we can fix it. But I also live it. I, I'm not the governor of Georgia. I didn't get the thing I wanted. And my responsibility in that moment, if there was a teachable moment there, was how I responded. I responded by acknowledging the legitimacy of the numbers based on what the laws permitted. But I also 
question the legitimacy of the laws themselves. And in that way, I know people you know, have taken exception to me saying I didn't accept the outcome of the election. No, I, I didn't say I'm governor. What I did say, though, is that the laws are wrong because anything that would allow a single man to oversee a system that takes the right to vote away from hundreds of thousands of people cannot be legitimate. And I fought that fight. I did not fight to make myself governor. There is no case that has been filed that will retroactively install me as governor. But what I hope people learned is that we don't have these binary choices anymore, that we can say something is without saying it is right. And then more importantly for me, it was that the next day or 10 days later, I started doing something about the next thing. I started Fair Fight. I started Fair Count. I started SEEP. And I've been doing that work because I want people to learn from my behavior that we can question without conceding, that we can fight without being obnoxious, and that we can defend without being defensive about it. Wishing you the very, very best of luck. Uh, you don't need the luck. Uh, fortitude. Stacey Abrams, thank you so, so much. Thank you. This has been a delight. That's Stacey Abrams. She's a lawyer, author, and founder of Fair Fight Action, a voter advocacy group. You can see her full talk at TED.com. And my conversation with Stacy is part of our TED Radio Hour episode, which is called The School of Life. That entire show will be in your feed later this week. And for all the latest updates on political news, be sure to download the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you like listening to podcasts. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, host of the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Thanks for being here.